Well, as always, do keep your Bible open. It'll be important to do so as we make our way through Revelation 17 today. We're thinking today about the Lamb's war with the world. The Lamb's war with the world. In the early 400s AD, one of the church fathers, Augustine, wrote what quickly became a classic book, The City of God. The City of God. And in his book, Augustine wanted to do two things. Uh, Firstly, he made the argument that the end of the Roman Empire was not the fault of Christianity. Christianity had become the official religion of Rome back in 380 AD. And the empire had declined and it had collapsed several decades later. And Augustine wanted to refute any notion that adopting Christianity had directly led Rome's demise. Secondly though Augustine wanted to demonstrate that the whole of human history is really a struggle between two cities. The city of God, Jerusalem and the city of Babylon. And by Babylon of course Augustine did not mean the actual historical Babylon, a city that was long gone by his day. But by Babylon, Augustine was talking about what Revelation 17 is talking about. The spirit of Babylon. The spirit of the world which is opposed to the Lord Jesus and to his church. And Rome had fallen, Augustine claimed, because it had the spirit of Babylon within her. Christianity might have become the official religion of the empire. It had certainly gained a huge following, a great influence But nonetheless, for much of the empire, the spirit of Babylon remained. And the whole of human history has been about the rise of various forms of Babylon in opposition to Christ and his church. That's what Revelation 17 is telling us, friends. To borrow from another famous author, these last few chapters of Revelation are a tale of two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. Or the world and the church. As I mentioned earlier, this is the sixth of the seven visions that make up the book of Revelation. The downfall of Babylon. Just glance ahead to chapter 18 and verse 2, which we'll come to this evening, God willing. Chapter 18, verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And there has been an expectation all the way through the book on the part of God's people that this would finally happen. Back in Revelation chapter 6, we see the martyred saints of Jesus in heaven. They had lost their lives on earth. Their blood had been shed. And they are praying there in Revelation chapter 6. They are praying for God to avenge them. And to finally judge the world that had taken their lives. Announcement of Babylon's fall came in chapter 14, but ultimately it only happens at last here in chapter 17 and 18. And and really, friends, what we have here in Revelation 17 and 18 is the same message that John himself gives us in his letter. 1 John 2, verse 17. Uh, You don't need to note down all the references today, but this one, if you're taking notes, might be worth noting. 1 John 2, 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away. 
And that's the message of Revelation 17. But once again, it's a message that comes to us in the forms of pictures and symbols. And so we want to think today about some of the main pictures and symbols in this chapter. We're going to do our best not to get lost in every single detail of the chapter. We we don't have time to go through all of it. Uh, And I think it's more important that we grasp the main ideas of the pictures in this chapter. And so let's think first of all about the woman who is described in this chapter. And the woman is a picture, friends, of the attraction of the world. The woman is a picture of the attraction of the world. She symbolizes the attraction of the world. Look at chapter 17 and verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. John then sees this woman again in verse 4, or he sees her for the first time, I should say, in verse 4. And look how he describes her in verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, And the impurities of her sexual immorality. Again important to emphasize this is a vision. This is figurative picture language. And this woman friends quite simply symbolizes the seduction and the attraction of the world. She symbolizes pride and lust and self-indulgence and the wielding of power. Once again, we keep the Old Testament in mind as we read Revelation. And in the Old Testament, if you, if you read through Isaiah, Jeremiah, many of the other prophets as well, it's, it's striking how often the prophets uh, led by God, told to speak these words by God, they describe the sin of God's people Israel as like being the sin of sexual immorality, adultery or, or prostitution. And it's not just Israel who is described that way. Other nations are described that way as well. If you read the book of Nahum, chapter 3, for example, Nineveh is described that way. The same city that Jonah went to minister to. And historical Babylon, the actual physical Babylon, is also described in terms of sexual sin in Jeremiah 51. And the reason the scriptures use this language, friends, this very graphic, very very stark language, is to emphasize to us that as, as disgusted as we may be by certain forms of sexual sin, that's how disgusted God is by all sin, by, by idolatry in particular, by, by the worship of false gods. It's like sexual immorality. It's like, being, it's like adultery being committed in the eyes of God, spiritually speaking. And so that's how this woman is described in Revelation 17. Notice in verse 4, she's dressed in fine clothing. She's covered in gold and jewellery. She offers wealth. She seems to be offering treasure. She seems very attractive. She has a golden cup that she holds out in her hand. But what's inside that golden cup? Abominations. Again, very strong language. It says the impurities of her sexual immorality. Extremely strong language. It's warning us, friends, pay attention to this. The world is not all that it seems. 
The name of this woman is Babylon the Great, verse 5, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And again, we're to understand, friends, that this is not the historical Babylon that we read about in the book of Daniel. It certainly includes aspects of what that nation was, but this is the spirit of Babylon. This is the seduction of worldly wealth and pride and lust that we see all throughout human history. In John's day, of course, the Roman Empire offered these things to people. It had the most powerful army. It ran the world economy. It it spread its influence and its beliefs all around the world. And in the Roman Empire, if you were born into the right strata of society, if you had the right gifts and determination, you could enjoy the sorts of things that this woman symbolises. And of course, all of that made it very difficult for Christians because they didn't want to engage in the things or they knew they shouldn't engage in the things that their trade guilds or their family or their colleagues or whoever it was were engaging in. They were trying to live according to God's law. All the while there was this allure, there was this attraction and temptation of the world around them. And John, through the vision that he gets here in Revelation, is saying to his readers... As attractive as all of it may seem, it is a golden bowl full of muck and poison that will never satisfy your soul. Of course, friends, we who are Christians today have to believe and remind ourselves of exactly the same things. And and you young people in particular need to remind yourselves of these things. That as attractive as some of the things of this world may seem at times, they are deceptive and they are not to be trusted. You remember what Jesus said in his parable of the seed and the sower. Mark chapter 4 verse 19. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires of for other things. Enter in and choke the word, Jesus says. And it proves unfruitful. Some people are so taken up with the imagined happiness that achievements in their work or the satisfaction of having certain possessions or conquests in the bedroom would bring. That the gospel simply does not appeal to them. Or even worse in some cases. They show interest in Christ and his gospel at first. But they allow that interest to be choked out by the seduction of other things. Again John's words in 1 John 2 are worth considering here. 1 John 2 verse 15. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world. The love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world. The desires of the flesh. And the desires of the eyes. And the pride of life. Is not from the father. But is from the world. And the world is passing away. Along with its desires. It's passing away friends. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It promises so much. It satisfies not a bit. And so the great challenge for us as Christians living in the time and place we do is not to marvel at the world, not to be taken in by the world and by its seduction. Your phone is great, but there's nothing on it unless you're opening your Bible app. There's nothing on it that will give rest to your soul. Your house is great, but it's bricks and mortar and none of it will go with us when we die. The human body is beautiful. It's the pinnacle of God's creation 
But it's made for more than the fleeting, tawdry, guilt-inducing sexual sin that so many people use it for. And it's also made for more than that idolizing of it that many people are falling into today. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, these are not things upon which to build our life's hopes and joys. They are not to be our life's priorities. You know what it is when, uh, if you imagine you're, you're, you're letting, uh, easing a boat off from the dock. Maybe uh, some, of you, some of you have had this experience. You're going to go sailing or you're, you're going to go fishing or something. Uh, well, to let that boat go, you need to hold the, the rope loosely in your hand. You don't, just, you don't just hold on to it for dear life. You hold it loosely and let it go eventually. And friends, that's the way we are to hold on to the things that we enjoy and, and can and should enjoy in this world, but which are not to be our ultimate hopes and our ultimate gods. Our bank balance, our treasures, our pleasures, we hold them with a loose grip knowing that they do not last forever and they will not satisfy our souls. The world is passing away. It's the city and the people and the kingdom of Jesus Christ that will last forever. So that's the woman that we see in chapter 17. She symbolizes the allure, the attraction, the seduction of the world. But the second main image that we see in chapter 17 is the beast And the beast represents the power of Satan in the world. The power of Satan in the world. This is not the first time that we've seen this beast. It was also described for us back in chapter 13. But if you look here at chapter 17 and verse 3, John sees this woman sitting on the beast. And it's described as being a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Go on down to verse 9. Uh, verse 9 says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads of the beast are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. Now, we've had a lot thrown at us there in a short space of time. Revelation is, is sort of piling on the pictures here to emphasize the points that are being made for us. The beast has seven heads, they're also described as mountains or kings. Heads, mountains and kings all symbolize power and authority in Revelation and elsewhere in Scripture as well. And there's seven of them and so once again that speaks of a complete number. And so it's, I think it's best to understand as many commentators take this view that these seven heads on the beast represent all, all risings, all forms of political or religious power against Christ and his church. Uh, throughout history or at the very least throughout the time between Christ's first and second coming. These seven heads or mountains or kings friends they represent political or cultural power rising up against Christ and his church. And again for John's readers what's the first thing that would come to mind as they thought about this? Rome. The Roman Empire. The emperors almost all of whom committed perverted sexual sin, encouraged worship of themselves, were drunk on power and lust and self-indulgence. But again, it's not just limited to Rome. This beast with its seven heads and ten horns represents worldly people 
worldly movements in any time and place indulging in sin and harassing the church. This was Babylon literally in the days of Daniel. It was Egypt in the days of Moses. It was the Roman Catholic Church at certain times in history. There is still reason to see the the papacy being described in, in this description of the beasts and the heads and so forth. Papacy is beastly with its gaudy wealth and it's taking for itself titles that don't belong to it at all. That belong only to, to God and to Christ. Adolf Hitler with his claims of a third Reich and a purified German nation. A communist China. The affluent, self-righteous, self-worshipping Western world that we live in today. Friends, it could be, all of these could be understood as manifestations of the heads of the beast. As revelations come out again in our media today about the immoral lifestyles of many of the richest and most famous amongst us. As we see the agendas of globalist bodies, all of these groups and movements, friends, they they are worldly governments, worldly people committed to worldly lusts. And this vision of the beast emphasizes to us that ultimately behind them all, spurring all of them on, is Satan. Satan. As I say, this beast is also mentioned back in chapter 13. And by the way that it's described both here and in chapter 13, it's described in such a way, friends, to show us that Satan is the one empowering it. Satan is the one behind it. Because it's described in a satanic sort of way. Uh, back in Revelation chapter 12, there's the vision of the dragon. And the dragon is also described as being red with seven heads and ten horns. And the dragon is certainly a picture of Satan. And so the fact that the beast is described in, in a way that's so similar to the way that Satan is described, that's telling us that Satan is behind the beast. That the power of Satan is what uh, empowers the beast. Satan is a spiritual being, friends, but he makes his presence felt in the physical world. And Satan will simply keep going in his efforts to seduce the church or to destroy the church. He will just keep coming back Again and again at us, whether it's through a political entity rising up here or a deceptively charismatic religious figure there. That's why if you notice in verse 8, the angel says to John, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. He says in verse 10 that five of the seven heads of the beast have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And so there's a sense there that the beast rises and falls. The beast takes one form And then takes another form. Some political figure rises up, persecutes the church, is defeated, goes away. Satan comes back at us through someone else. Babylon, Rome, the papacy, eastern dictators, western decadence. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Friends, ultimately, it's Satan enticing, attacking, deceiving the nations, getting them drunk on their their own lust and idolatry, their own imagined greatness, stirring them up against the church. So we've thought about the woman, we've thought about the beast. We want to see also, and more encouragingly here in chapter 17, 
the Lamb's people. And the Lamb's people here we see are persecuted by, but triumph over the world. The woman symbolized the attraction of the world. The beast symbolizes the power, the power of Satan in the world. We see also the Lamb's people ultimately triumphing over the world. Notice something else about the woman and the beast. Verse 6. The woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The woman and the beast persecute the people of God, the church. And you remember how John himself had already experienced some of this persecution. Uh, He tells us back in Revelation chapter 1 that he's exiled. He's on a little island called Patmos on account of the word of God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. And so John himself has already been persecuted to some degree uh, for his faith. Remember too what Jesus said to the seven churches. Uh, Revelation 2 verse 13. Jesus says to the church in Pergamum. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Notice that Satan's throne. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness who was killed among you. So already friends in the days of John. and the days of the churches to which Revelation was first addressed. The church is feeling the wrath of Satan. It's feeling the attack of Satan. And again verse 6 is very vivid. John sees the harlot drunk with the blood of the saints. And the language there emphasizing to us the pleasure that the world takes in this. The, the sort of the hounding of, of the church by the world. But what happens to the church? Look at verse 14. They, that is the kings, the beast and the woman, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. The lamb is not one bit threatened by the best and most beastly efforts of Satan friends. Political persecutors, cultural influencers, religious figures, whatever form the attacks of Satan takes, they cannot touch, they cannot defeat the Lamb. He has been slain and now he is standing victorious. I died, Jesus says in Revelation 1, and behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, he has Full authority over Satan and this world. Jesus has suffered once the righteous for the unrighteous. He has died once. And now he has defeated Satan and sin and death itself. And so friends, Satan can snarl and snatch. He might even shed the blood of the saints. But the lamb will conquer. And the lamb will be victorious. And the lamb is Lord of lords and King of kings. Remember that, friends, the next time we read of Christians being slaughtered in Nigeria or Pakistan or Iran or forced underground in China or pastors imprisoned in in China or North Korea or wherever it is. The Lamb knows and sees and will conquer. But notice, friends, when the Lamb fully and finally puts down the beast, the world, Notice that his people will be standing with him. Look again at verse 14. Those with him are called 
and chosen and faithful, those with him. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2, Do you not know that the saints are to judge the world? He says in verse 3 of that chapter that the saints will judge even the angels. That is the fallen angels, the demons. What does Paul mean? He's saying the same thing, friends, that we read here in Revelation 17, 14, that if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you remain faithful to him, despite the attraction of the world and despite the persecution of the world, then you will be standing by his side when he judges the world. What a mind-boggling truth that is. That we will judge the world side by side with Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thought, friends. It's a humbling thought. When justice is done, standing by the side of the Lamb will be those, Revelation says, who are called and chosen and faithful. How do you know if you're called and chosen and faithful? Well, have you repented of sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice on the cross in your place? Do you love the Lord Jesus? Does it grate in your ears and weigh on your heart when you hear the name of Jesus used as a swear word? Do you hate your sin? More and more, do you feel easily convicted over sin, even over things the world might not, th- they just say, oh, don't worry about that. Sure, that's no big deal. Everybody does that. But no, in your heart, there's conviction. Do you pray daily in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you speak about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for you? Do you love to be here or wherever it is that God's people are gathering to praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Does the world just look increasingly unattractive to you? You read here about this woman holding out a golden cup and it turns out to be full of filth and you think, yeah, Increasingly, as I look at the world, I don't see a golden cup. I just see the filth. I just see the mess the world is in. And it's not very attractive to me anymore. It's not to say we aren't to remain on guard against temptation. But just more and more, we're tired of this world. Tired of the foolishness of this world. The the nonsense that's talked. the, The empty promises that it makes. That's just some of the evidence, friends, that you're saved that you're called, that you're chosen, that you will remain faithful. If those things describe you today, then that's why this world doesn't feel like you're home. Because it isn't. Nonetheless, the New Testament warns us, 2 Peter 1 verse 10, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. In other words, don't let your guard down. Take your faith seriously. Be alive to the temptations of Babylon and of the world and of Satan. Ask God for the strength you need to remain faithful. And at the end, when the Lamb is victorious and comes in judgment, you will be standing along with him. So the woman, the attraction of the world, the beast, Satan's power in the world. The Lamb's people persecuted by but triumphing over the world and Uh, And just really to close, the Lamb's victory over the world. The Lamb's victory 
over the world. Look at verse 15. The angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. I've said before, waters or seas in Revelation always means threat or danger of some kind. Uh, Here these waters represent the threat of the ungodly nations of the world under Satan's influence. Uh, He says, verse 15 and 16, the ten horns, verse 16, sorry, the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts. Notice that. God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Notice here, friends, that the world will defeat itself. First of all, the world will defeat itself. Verse 16 says that the very same kings who had fallen for the seduction of the woman, in the end they will hate the woman. The very things that they were allured to, attracted to and wanted and indulged in, now they hate them. This is the shame of sin. What you wanted so badly, perhaps just minutes before, now you hate it and you want to be rid of it. And you realise that it's left you unfulfilled. One preacher says, when you serve the world, this is what happens. It may begin with infatuation, it will always end in destruction. Think of Judas, so lustful for money, so greedy for gain. What could be better than 30 pieces of silver? It's all the Lord Jesus was worth to him. And then, seeing what was going to happen to Jesus, Judas feels ashamed and disgusted with himself. He tries to give back what the world had offered him. He goes out and destroys himself. James 1 verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Sin leads to death friends. Whether it's acceptable sin in the world's eyes. Whether it's what you would call big sin. It leads to death. And eventually, the very things that the world wanted and craved, it's left ashamed and disgusted by. Our culture is taking stock of itself at the moment. Um, All these allegations about Russell Brand and the behaviour he indulged in 50 or 20 years ago. uh, Somehow our culture is now ashamed of the very behaviour that it once celebrated. Some of the, the very same media outlets that gave that man a platform are now saying how awful it was that he was allowed to do these things. See, the standards of the world change all the time. What's acceptable and what's not. What's to be indulged in and what's not. But in the end, the world will eat itself up. The world will tear itself in two, friends. That same sin that it's celebrated will be its downfall. And that's what happened with the original Babylon. It's what happened with the Roman Empire. I do wonder if it is what we're seeing beginning to happen in our Western world today. When we can't even define what a man is or what a woman is. When our government acts purely based on fear and people pleasing and short term thinking. When murder is described as healthcare. When people are addicted to technology and substances. Are we not seeing people around us who have been seduced by the world now raging against the world? 
Notice the threefold description of Babylon's demise, friends. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, burn her up with fire. Piling on the descriptions to emphasize the certainty of the destruction of Babylon. But notice that it's not just that Babylon and the beast are somehow left in a corner to destroy themselves. Uh, Yes, they do. The world does turn on itself. But notice also, friends, that this is God's judgment upon them. Look at verse 17. God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. Satan, the world, the people within it who hate the church, God is sovereign over it all, friends. God is missing nothing of what is happening in our world And when we see a head of the beast rise and then fall and destroy itself, it's because God has brought it about. God is fulfilling his words, we're told there in Revelation 17, carrying out his purpose. And that is where this world is headed, friends. For the destruction that God has long planned for it. I told you at the beginning about Augustine's book, The City of God. The only question left for you today is, to which city do you belong? Babylon or Jerusalem? There's no neutral ground in our world, friends. There's no no man's land that is still to be claimed by either Babylon or Jerusalem. It's the realm of Satan or it's the church of Christ. Which are you a part of today? One is going to destroy itself and face the righteous judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other is going to last forever. Beautiful, perfect, glorious. The joy of the whole earth. Can't wait to get to the last couple of chapters of Revelation so that we can look at it in more detail. But dear friend, as the golden cup of wealth and ambition and self-indulgence and sexual lust is held out to you by the world today and this week and in the months ahead, remember that that golden cup is full of what is stinking and horrible and deathly. That's all Babylon has to offer. Turn instead to the Lamb who was slain on the cross, but he is now standing victorious, ready to receive those who trust in him, And who will have us to stand by his side when he brings final judgment upon this world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen.